I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I just wanted to encourage you all to watch some of my IG Live videos on Instagram. On Instagram, my accounts are at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. But in case I haven't told you, which it occurred to me that maybe I haven't, on Instagram every day at 11 o'clock Eastern time, I interview authors live from my at Zibby Owens account. And to watch it, you just have to open up Instagram. And if you're following me when I'm live, it'll show up on the upper left of your screen in the story section and it'll say live and there'll be a little red circle. So every day, Monday to Friday, I do an IG live show check it out. I do one to four authors a week. Sometimes the shows become these podcasts. And I also do one on Sundays at two with my husband, Kyle. um, And we talk about step parenting and life and all the rest. So if you haven't watched an IG Live, please do. And also I have a virtual book club that I hope you know about. This is all on my website, by the way, zibbyowens.com. But check out my virtual book club, which is through a site called Book Clubs, with a Z, B-O-O-K-C-L-U-B-Z.com. And no, I didn't make that up after my name, but actually it just worked out perfectly. So go to bookclubs.com, and I'm actually the featured book club on their homepage. So you can just click, and you're invited to sign up. Um, I have amazing guests every week, and that meets Tuesdays at 2 p.m., Uh, Eastern Time via Zoom. So please don't miss out on all these other offerings for all of you guys who are loyal listeners to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And always feel free to check out my website at zibbyowens.com to find out what I'm up to and what else you can do. Oh, and also sign up for my newsletter. On In my newsletter every week, I give updates on the latest, the book recommendations, all my podcasts, all my IG lives, my book club, and any other fun information, um, plus usually some list or article or something that I think would be helpful. So um, also sign up for my mailing list if you get a chance. Okay, that's enough for me. Now go listen to this episode. Today's episode has been sponsored by Stylist. I'd love to tell you more about Stylist because it's the newest and easiest way to shop via text. And to be honest, at first I was a little scared to try it, but once I did it, it's become like the most amazing thing ever. You literally take a picture of something and just text it. So I did it with a light bulb from the dining room that I have no idea what it was. And I took a picture of it and they figured it out. They searched it, they sent me the link to it, and then they sent me the whole item um, all via text. So it's really fantastic. Membership is only $9.99 a month, $9.99. The first month is free. You can cancel at any time. When you sign up with my referral code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you get one free book. So to sign up, just text Zibby to, these are numbers you're going to text, so get ready, 926-848- and text Zibby with a capital Z. Um, and Or you can sign up on their website, stylelust, S-T-Y-L-U-S-T dot com. And your first book can be free up to $50, which is so great. So go get yourself a free book and try out Stylist. My friend from business school, um, Melissa Bridgeford, is the one who founded this company. And I'm so thrilled to support her. And it's so nice that she's giving away $50 worth of a book for everybody. So um, I hope you love it. And I hope it saves you time because it's ended up sending me so much time now that I'm just clicking pictures of random snacks and then they show up at my door because they've helped me order it. So please try out Stylist. Again, it's text to number 926-848 and text Zibby, capital Z, or go to stylist.com and try it out and let me know what you think. Mary Beth Keen is the author of Ask Again, Yes. She attended Barnard College and the University of Virginia, where she received an MFA. 
She has been named one of the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 and was awarded a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship for fiction writing. She currently lives in Pearl River, New York with her husband and their two sons. She is also the author of The Walking People and Fever. Hi, Mary Beth. Thanks for coming on Mom's Now Time to Read Books. Hi, Zimmy. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So you are the author of Ask Again Yes, which has been on the bestseller list like for weeks and weeks and was such a big success that even Jimmy Fallon voted it on his book club as like the thing. So that crazy thing <laughs> happened. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so tell listeners who might not know what Ask Again Yes is about. So it's about two families who end up living next door to one another in a suburb of New York City in the 70s. And the book spans about 40 years. It begins in the 70s. It ends in 2018, I believe. And they end up living as neighbors. And the dads in both houses are cops. And they're sort of bonded by what the dads do for a living. But it ends up, the kids become kind of close. But then this tragic event happens that divides the families, they think, forever. Of course, they are not divided forever. That's not a plot spoiler. You can sort of feel it coming in the prose. And it's sort of about how the things that happen to us as kids, the traumas of our childhoods, how we end up carrying them into adulthood in strange ways, even when we think we're long past those things. I mean, the book is really, that's sort of, you know, there's the situation and the story. I think the story is really about love, you know, and how it changes and gets tested and morphs over time, you know, who you have to protect within a love relationship, yourself, the person that you're committed to, you know, and it's not just romantic love, it's between siblings, parent and children, and all of the above, you know, basically, it's like what we all go through in a messy life, and whether it's worth it or not. I've heard you describe this as Romeo and Juliet, if like the families then had to, you know, hang out again forever. (laughs) That is something that struck me when I read Romeo and Juliet as a kid, you know, in high school, I guess was the first time I read it. And then I read it again in college. And I thought this is all well and good, but it's obvious that the author, if it was William Shakespeare, you know, knew it could only end one way because otherwise it's sort of even more depressing. You know, how does that love look 10, 20, 30 years later, if they have to, if one of, you know, if they'd lived and they had to be with each other's families or they had to share grandkids and all that. So yeah, it's sort of, I, I said that sort of tongue in cheek once, but now I keep saying it over and over because it is accurate. Well, sorry to make you say it again. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. It's a, it's a good description. So what, how did you come up with the story? Uh, you know, it's hard. To, I feel like a lot of writers, I come up with an answer, but the truth is I don't I don't totally know, you know, why this story felt most important to me at the time I started writing. I think it's because some of the themes of the book, like estrangement over a long time, mental illness, alcoholism, all of these things were coming up in my own life, not necessarily my own direct life, but my friends and family. I was having to talk about these things a lot and consider them. I've said before that my we have a long estrangement in my family, my between my husband and his parents, and we also knew each other since we were young. I don't necessarily, I don't want, people who don't maybe have a good imagination immediately think this is not fiction then. It is, it's a total fiction. But those things that I was thinking about in real life certainly inspired the fiction that came out of it, Kate and Peter's story. So I think I was just trying to manage becoming a mother and my kids getting older and imagining what it would be like if I you know, we're in a situation where we didn't speak, you know, and, and how that happens to a family. It is hard to imagine as a parent now 
that you could put in all this work and time and then they grow up and you don't talk to them when you're so yeah. intimately connected, particularly now because we're talking during the quarantine. And <laughs> the fact that they could just be out in the world and not talk to you is sort of hard to even wrap my head around. And forget that you made them sandwiches every day during this. Two hot lunches, two hot meals a day. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's over and over after my oldest son, he'll be 12 in July. And at every stage, there are things that happen that I thought I would never do. You know, I'd never hand my kid an iPad in a long car ride. You know, this is before I had children. <laughs> now I happily give it up, you know, just to get five minutes of silence. And that, and that's just a funny example. But there are lots of things like that. And I think that I, you know, worry about what's coming for us, I guess. What thing can I not imagine now that will be here before I know it? You know, it's a scary thought, but it has to be a real one if it happens over and over again. I also think, I don't know whether it's like the Irish character or what, but there is a lot of estrangement within Irish families. My parents are Irish born, so are my husbands. And so it's the culture that I'm most familiar with, but I've noticed that it it never happens all at once. You know, it's not like someone says something that rents the air and then it's over. It happens little by little by little. And then 20 years have gone by and you're at a funeral. And that's scary to me too, that making no decision is also a decision in a way. The same is probably true for alcoholism. You know, people don't just become alcoholics overnight. You know, it's bit by bit by bit. And I have friends, you know, and loved ones who've struggled with this. And I've wondered why I don't. I had my first drink when I was like 12, which was pretty normal the way I grew up. And I just know that I don't. So, you know, why is that? Things like that I thought about a lot when I was starting to write this book. Those are all really interesting things. It's like, yeah, why why can some people try something once and they're addicted forever? And then other people, it's like, okay, I can manage this on my own in some way. But And that is also scary to think for your kids. Like, you don't know. They're just sitting there. Right. What do they have? What genetic predispositions? Maybe one of them is going to, you know, you just don't know. <laughs> and could I be doing something that, like, is the seed, you know, that just starts whatever journey that they're on? You know, just by one day I yell a particular thing or, you know, you just don't know why things happen and it's scary. I'm going to take that guilt off you and there, say that there is no way there is one thing you could yell that will turn a child that. down no, that you path. Me yell. I, can be <laughs> too, so. I can imagine. I feel like this quarantine is not exactly bringing the best out of me oh, <laughs> as a parent at times. So I get it. <laughs> the other night I yelled, no one can have their ice cream until you've finished your popcorn. And I was like, why do I care? They're eating like junk after junk. I know. Like, <laughs> I say the same. I'm like, no, no dessert till your pizza's all gone. Like, what? Really? Like, yeah. eating pizza is going to make them better off. They should just skip the pizza. It's like, yeah. It's scary. It's fine. I mean, there's so little we can control now. It's like these little rules. That's all we have left to sort of cling to the little ropes, you know, that like we're swinging through the jungle. And it's like, yeah, right. dinner yeah, before right. dessert. That's it. That's all I can say. It doesn't matter how bad the dinner is. Order is everything <laughs> at that age. I mean, it's no way. So true. The plan. And what you said about how if you don't resolve something, it just grows over time, right? It's so true. And I feel like actually that happens in a lot of marriages where things just go unsaid or unfixed. And then before you know it, it's like, it's been years and whatever that little, you don't even remember what the little thing was in the beginning. It just like snowballs and it can yeah. happen with friendships and marriage and so many other things. Or you get used to like skirting it. Walking mm -hmm. around it, it just becomes second nature. And then one day, 20 years down the road, you have to look at it, you know, and be like, wow, this thing has been sitting here for a really long time. 
and it's gotten awfully big. And now, and it's even harder to deal, you know, after a long time. But I think that happens a lot. I agree. It's so true. Do you have a lot of cops in your family? The descriptions, I know you said you've done a lot of research on this book. Or I read that you did a lot of research, but is there, do you have a lot of cops in your family or is that just? I don't. For an Irish family, we don't have any cops. I don't know why. We were mostly bartenders and construction workers. But I have a lot of friends whose dads were cops or now whose like brothers or spouses or, you know, sisters are cops. So I had access, I guess. I grew up in a town that was a lot of NYPD and a lot of FDNY. And so I was able to interview a lot of detectives who were active in the 70s and 80s and then people who are active now. And I think the force is quite different than it was then as something that was interesting. But I I did talk to a lot of cops and I think most of them are really interested in telling stories about the job. They see crazy things, but... I was not that interested in the crazy stories, which was confusing to some of them. (laughs) I mean, they were, you know, interesting to an extent, but what I really wanted to know was how they felt maybe or how their spouses felt, even about being a cop in the first place. You know, I don't think that that's something that, I don't know, a lot of personalities allow themselves to like examine fully. But I do think, you know, a lot of the people I talked to did think a lot about that. You know, they weren't used to maybe talking the way that I wanted to talk but I, I wore them down. Nice. <laughs> and got them to talk, you know, and some people want, they were very delighted. Some I mentioned in my acknowledgement, some I didn't because they didn't want to be mentioned, maybe because they weren't sure what sort of book I was writing. Maybe they thought I was weird. I don't know. But yeah, I was lucky to be able to talk to a lot of people, pretty frankly, about what work was like. And I love the scene in, when a rookie cop has his first like really bad night and has to call home and the wife is like, were you, were you really scared? I mean, there's like this long bend. He's like, no, no, no. But you know he was, and she knows he was. And I don't know. I could just see that happening so easily. Well, I think true. That's a, it's another thing that I think happens sort of incrementally. I think there's something about being a police officer where, at least in that era, that was the 70s when that happened. I don't think they felt like they were, I think it was like part of the job to say they weren't afraid. You know, and of course you were afraid. You know, that's what courage is. But I think if you pretend to yourself for a period of years that you're not afraid, you know, that's how this, you know, this thing builds up inside, you know, and and the force now, NYPD, has a problem with depression. I mean, I can't remember how many suicides there were in 2019, but it was, it was a lot to the point where it's, you know, now considered a crisis. And I think they've gotten much better about that, about counseling and psychology for their, you know, for everyone, but I think it still has a ways to go. And in the seventies, I don't think that existed pretty much at all. So. And tell me about your process writing this book. I understand it took you about four years to write, but tell me the whole thing, like where and when, how old were your kids? Like the whole, Uh, paint me a picture. This book was awful to write. (laughs) Like I, I have no advice when it comes to that. I don't think writing one book teaches you how to write another. I love hearing other writers answer this because I hope to learn something. I just kept, I think because this book felt so personal to me, I just kept writing to where the energy was, if that makes sense. So I saw this one character, Francis, early. I could see him sort of on the beat, maybe not that comfortable with being a cop in the first place, but it was a good job. It had benefits. It was respectable, you know, and then he's in it. And then what do you do then? You can't really be something else. And so I saw his sort of ambivalence and I saw how he looked and I saw his, the neighborhood. 
So I wrote that, you know, for a couple of months and the things that happened. Then I saw Peter, who's a different generation, and I knew he wasn't Francis, Francis's son. And I saw all the things that like he was doing. So I'd sort of write, I didn't know whether I was writing two books or what they had to do with one another, but it was a total mess. I mean, I had people going off to Vietnam and coming back and I mean, everything that could have happened, happened. But then I had to whittle it down to what was essential. And it ended up being like a puzzle piece. You know, I had to sort of cycle backwards and forwards. In any case, it ended up, I just wrote a lot of different drafts and structured it a lot of different ways. And then finally found this way, which seemed to work the best. But I didn't have readers for a long time, partly because I didn't know what this thing really was. And so that you know, I guess it would have helped to get readers earlier. But on the other hand, they might have directed me to do something that I didn't want to do yet, since I wasn't quite sure what it was. Anyway, it was a mess. And there's no approach and I don't outline. <laughs> so I love when people have these like boards with string, you know, and index <laughs> cards, it looks like they're like invading a foreign country or something. And it seems so straightforward. And I've tried to do that, but I can't. The minute I know what's going to happen next, it's like all the prose just goes dead. It's just <laughs> totally flat. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think I'm just a messy writer. I don't know. Backwards and forwards. But that's okay. I mean, it sounds, I mean, I mean you shouldn't feel badly take, about that. Yeah, no, you know, I don't want to take, you know, this much time. Also, my kids were little. My husband used to have a job where he commuted between New York and Chicago and then, I don't know, the kids were little and they weren't in full-time school. My youngest is in third grade now. And I guess I finished the book in 20, I don't know, 17 or 18. So, you know, it takes a while. And then I try to grab time where I can. And sometimes getting childcare, I found, wasn't, it wasn't as helpful as just getting up in the middle of the night, like by myself on my own time. I don't think that makes sense to a lot of people, but it it makes sense maybe to, to writers. Sounds like it makes sense to you. You're nodding. You know, so it's it's a weird mind game. Well, it's so funny because right before you today, I interviewed J. Courtney Sullivan, who I oh. realized blurbed your book, and she just said the exact same thing, like that oh. she wrote her most recent book basically in the middle of the night, and that was like her time when, you know, as a new mom and everything. So I'm nodding because like that's, not a rare thing at all. It's like... Yeah, it's good. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Nor is it rare to not have it organized like that. I feel like it's actually more rare to have it color-coded and perfect before you write it. I guess those are the people who are always posting things about their like organi organized boards and stuff. I wouldn't dare show my desk because it would give people a migraine. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so. That's why there's a misperception that that's more frequent. It's not. It's just more frequently posted. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Good. Anyway. <laughs> well, this was your third book. Do you now want to write any more books? Like, do you, you seem yeah. a little down on the whole thing. <laughs> well, I, this is just me. I mean, this is just the way I am. I'm overwhelmed. Well, I just mailed off a hundred pages to a, a reader friend of mine who's also a writer. So maybe that's why I'm in this weird mood. You know, I'm a little bit anxious. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I start having a no novel, I think, start bubbling up a little bit before I'm done with my last one. But then you have to talk about the book that's come out for a long time. So sometimes you can't like quite look at it. But yeah, I'm in a good spot now. I mean, this is the silver lining of this strange time that we're in right now is that I feel like I can think about a new book a lot more than I would have if we weren't stuck at home. I'd be on a paperback tour and doing press and stuff like that. And the other weird thing is my second book, 
is, you know, weirdly relevant to what's going on now. It was about an asymptomatic character that we all know as Typhoid Mary, but she was a real person. So I find myself thinking about her a lot too. But yeah, I definitely, hopefully I have lots of more books in me. We'll see. I was reading, I didn't, I didn't read that book Fever, but I was reading about it and I was thinking, wow, well, this could so easily be happening to somebody now. I mean, yeah, really be anybody. I have more sympathy for her. I had sympathy then, but even more so now that she never had any symptoms of typhoid fever at all. And she was in her thirties, lived alone at that time. She supported herself was really unusual. And to just be taken out of your life and isolated from society without ever having been arrested, there was no due process. And imagine how frustrating that was. You know, I sort of could imagine it then, but now I can really imagine it. Did you see the movie Richard Jewell that came out very recently? Because that might be worth watching while you're in quarantine. But it was about the, you know, the Oklahoma City bomber. And that basically is what happened to him without due process and suddenly removed from life and surrounded by the FBI. And there was no court trial or anything. Anyway, it has some similar themes to that. And it was really well done as a movie with Clint Eastwood directing or whatever. Anyway. Just as an aside, we have <laughs> not, time. Okay. not that you're looking for movie recommendations for me, but you know, just throwing it out there. Okay. <laughs> so I don't want to ask you for advice for new authors. <laughs> Is there anything else about asking and yes that, that I have missed that maybe you'd want to relay to people that maybe I didn't think to ask or anything? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people have taken different things out of this book, which has been, I think the nicest experience, the nicest part of this has been people from other cultures and countries identifying with it. I did not see that coming at all. Now, you know, I thought this was my sort of like private book, felt very personal. I had to write it, so I might as well try to publish it since I'd spent all this time on it. And that it's now, I think it's in 21 languages, which is lovely. But the thing that really gets me are the letters from, you know, like an editor in Macedonia or Israel to say like, this could be my family. And I was afraid that I was writing about people that no one else would care about or understand. And that's been really nice. And I think, I mean, I hope I don't sound too, I've been stuck in my house for a month. So if I sound grumpy, it's only because of that. But to people who want to write a novel, you know, and are thinking about it, I think this has been a great lesson to not try to write to the market or to what anybody else, you know, says is a good idea or not, you know, just write the thing that you have to write. And that will, if you do a good job, hopefully it'll find an audience because you just can't predict anything else except your own, you know, perseverance and your own commitment to your story, I think. And also this was in development perhaps as a limited, is that still the case? That has been really exciting. Fever is too, and it's been a little while. Elizabeth Moss optioned that, and she's been doing Handmaid's Tale now for a while. But this is two producers who optioned to ask again, yes, and that's the idea, a limited series. So it's very, it was only a couple of months ago now that they, that everything came through. So hopefully that'll, wheels will start turning pretty soon, I hope. That's exciting. Very exciting, yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on this podcast, and I hope that we all get out of our homes soon. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for talking about your great book and and all the rest of it. (laughs) No problem. Okay, Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot.
Today's episode has been sponsored by Stylist. Please try out Stylist. Again, it's text to number 926-848 and text Zibby, capital Z, or go to stylist.com and try it out and let me know what you think. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm-hmm.